Listening to KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told at the Kenneth Hidi Northern Light United Church on January 10th, 2023. Co-hosts for the evening were Kristen Rankin and Crystal Brulette. The theme for the event was Never Again. Friends of the Marie Drake Planetarium was our profit recipient. Live music was performed by the Njuzu Marimba Band. Let's start the show. Up first, we have Lester Rodriguez. Lester moved to Juno in September of 2021 from California. He started surfing during COVID, and after hitting the waves during a storm, he has learned to be a bit more cautious. Please welcome to the stage, Lester. Hi, my name's uh, Lester Rodriguez, and I'm what you call a COVID surfer, which isn't the most endearing name in the surf lineup. I uh, started surfing during COVID because I needed an outlet to be outside and kind of relieve this, well, as you all know, the tension of being cooped up at home all the time. And thankfully, I was in a position to have the outdoors, as I'm sure you all are comfortable with out here as well. Uh, My friend uh, hit me up one afternoon and asked me, what do you want to do? Like, we can do something outdoors. Um, We need something to relieve all our stress. And I just threw a a suggestion I've always wanted to do, but never thought I could uh, complete uh, surfing. Always wanted to surf, and she said, yeah, let's go ahead and take a lesson. And lo and behold, I started surfing every weekend after taking that first lesson that we had and just fell in love with it. It's such a beautiful feeling where I hit the wave and I fell down every single time I got up. It took me months and months of just trying to (laughs) hit that wave. One of my favorite moments that we had uh, when we were first learning was when we were looking at the horizon as the waves or the set was coming in. And out of nowhere, you see this bubbling up in the horizon, the sun sparkling, like, oh, what's going on there? We have no idea what's going on. And um, it got closer and closer and closer. And all of a sudden, these little sardines just start jumping up on our board. And like, wow, this can actually happen? They're just... What's going on? And all of us are looking at, down at our boards and all these sardines, and out of nowhere, bam, bam, these pelicans just start diving in between us. And just all of us caught by surprise without even thinking what's actually going on. But just moments like that where I decided then and there I needed to seek as much fun as I can when I'm out surfing. Uh, just completely enamored with this wonderful feeling of love and passion and just relaxation too with all that stress that COVID cost us. Then one morning, getting ready for a a surf session, we decided to do what's called dawn patrol, meaning uh, we try to get to hit the waves as soon as we can, or as soon as the sun comes up so we can catch those beautiful colors on the horizon. Uh, 
Early in the morning, we wake up uh, with my crew, and we hear howling out the windows. Like, oh, it's actually windy out. Like, and without thinking, we don't even think to check the weather because it's California. Who checks the weather in California? <laughs> so we get ready with our boards and start loading them up on my yellow, what I love to call my yellow submarine, my lovely SUV. And as I'm loading them up, when I'm climbing on top of my car, um, we hear crash, bah, thunder. I'm like, whoa, okay. We're going to have such a great time with this thunderstorm that's going on right between us. Not completely clueless to what we're doing. Um, and we had all the signs. So we start driving out towards Half Moon Bay. I don't know if y'all are familiar with it, but beautiful scenery. We start driving and hit the bridge uh, between San Mateo and uh, Hayward. And as we're driving through that bridge, you get an entire view of the Bay Area and just lightning. It's completely dark out and just lightning here, lightning there, crashing. And I'm just huddled over my steering wheel, completely happy and satisfied with what's going on <laughs> from here to there. Just, wow, I can't believe this has actually happened. We hardly get thunderstorms, uh, at least during that time. So we were driving, and lo and behold, we arrive to the, to the beach. And as the sun starts rising, pink lightning bolt there, pink lightning bolt here. I didn't know can, or lightning bolts can change colors. Just completely in awe with what, how beautiful the beach and mother nature can be. So we line up, our, or we put our leashes on our surfboards and on our ankles, uh, and we sit on the beach thinking, yeah, it's far enough. The lightning's you know, nowhere near us. Uh, not even thinking uh, to count uh, the, how far the lightning and the thunder are in between. So we hit that first wave, and we all fall and completely laughing <laughs> with what we're doing. Like, oh, wow, we're actually surfing in a lightning storm. This is so cool. <laughs> and we do it again and again and again. And wow, can you believe that no one's actually sharing these waves with us? It's just us. <laughs> it's just us here in the midst of it all and enjoying every moment that we can. So... When we finish our surf session after being tossed in the washing machine, that we like to call it, and um, having the salt drip from our nose, we uh, sit on the beach and keep seeing the lightning storm pass us by like, oh, wow, wasn't that beautiful? Wasn't that precious? And from then and there, we all decided to make a pact like, hey, let's be storm chasers for these waves. And <laughs> we keep uh, looking at the weather reports like, oh, this is probably not going to happen again for any time soon. And we're like, okay, well, the next time a storm comes our way, uh, we'll go ahead and chase it. We'll go up and down the coast, go down to Santa Cruz, San Diego, go up north to Eureka or somewhere, and hit as many storms as we can. Uh, then six months later, my, right before a surf session that my friend is uh, getting us ready for, she sends me uh, an article, uh, somber. She's like, Lester, like, I know we had a great time during that surf, uh, surf storm, but you got to read this. Like, okay, what's going on here? Catherine Diaz, 22 years old, an Olympic prospect for the first ever Olympic surf competition, went out to surf in a lightning storm in El Salvador. And unfortunately, she did not paddle back home. So as much as we had fun, 
being kind of reckless and not even thinking about our lives because again, this was COVID and we we're just trying to have as much fun as we can. Came to the realization that no, like our life is short and sweet and we got to take care of ourselves as much as we can too, even though we're having the time of our lives. So from then on, we decided, yeah, maybe storm chasing is not a great idea, but we'll still try to live in the moment as much as we can. And that's when we decided, serving in a lightning storm, never again. <laughs> Our next storyteller is Tom Custer. Born in Nebraska, rhymes with Alaska. Tom grew up in San Diego and moved to Juneau in 1975 to clerk for two superior court judges. He and his wife Susan still live in the beach cabin they bought in 1976. They've remodeled five times where their two daughters were born and raised. He is a recovering attorney, having retired in 2006 and enjoys reading, singing, songwriting, and guitar playing. Please don't ask him to sing because he might not stop. Here's Tom. Mid-November, 1980, the Custer family, that's Tom, Sue, two-year-old Summer, and four-month-old Roz, set out for the Virgin Islands, the American Virgins. But because Chattanooga, Tennessee is on the way, and that's where Sue's sister, Chris, lives, we decide to make a stopover on the way to the Virgins. Chris has a business called High Adventure Sports. They do spelunking, whitewater rafting, hang gliding, and more's the pity, skydiving. So, Sue, Chris and her business partner, Leon, talk Tom into taking a practice jump, which means I'm not gonna do a free fall, I'm not even gonna pull the ripcord. Leon, the jump master, will take a pilot chute, put it out into the plane's slipstream, and it will open the main chute and I'll come down. What could possibly go wrong? So we go to the ground school and Leon teaches us how to get out of the plane without running afoul of the tail, how to take the position of a skydiver, how to pull the ripcord, how to pull the reserve ripcord if the first one doesn't work, then we go to a six-foot platform and jump off and learn to land. Bent knees, shoulder roll, take away the impact from the ground. And finally, we learned about a phenomenon called ground rush. Ground rush is what happens as you're coming down peacefully swinging back and forth in your parachute, and you're traveling about the same speed that you travel when you jump off a six-foot platform at the very end. The difference is you're actually going at that speed all the way down. The consequence is that the ground looks like it's rushing up to you at that terminal velocity. So the next day, we get ready to go. It's a small Piper Cub type plane. It has four seats, pilot, Leon, two experienced jumpers that are going to do free fall, and Tom. So everyone gets in the plane, and just as I'm ready to get in, two-year-old Summer comes up, tears streaming down her face, grabs me by my jumpsuit and goes, Daddy, no jump! Daddy, no jump! 
Ah, the wisdom of children. <laughs> so Sue collects summer. Um, I get in the airplane. Because there are only four seats, I sit on the floor. The door has been removed because you can't really open the door when you're flying. So off we go. We get to 2,000 feet. Leon looks over at me and says, are you ready? And I suddenly get this realization, I'm going to jump out of a perfectly good airplane and have no idea what's going to happen. So I want to turn to Leon and say, ready? Heck no, I'm not ready. But if I don't go, no one else can go because I'm in the way. So I nod, nod my head. Yeah. Leon says, go. And immediately my reaction is, go? There's no place to go. What do you mean, go? So I swallow my fear, jump out. I have absolutely no recollection of jumping out of the plane. I'm told that I immediately assumed the position perfectly. The pilot chute came out, it did its job. The main chute comes out. I look up, all the shrouds are clear. This is pretty cool. I pull on one toggle and turn right, pull on another toggle and turn left. I look down in the landing zone, and there's a red kayak. And they orient it into the wind so I know which way to come in from. So I work my way around, and I'm swinging back and forth. This is just lovely. I get about 20 feet off the ground, and ground rush happens. Now, it's one thing to understand conceptually what ground rush is. It's another thing to experience it. I look at it like I know conceptually what happens to a crash test dummy. <laughs> I have no idea what really happens to a crash test dummy. So rather than bend my knees, do my landing re um, routine, I tense up, straighten my legs, land really heavily. I look down, and my right foot is displaced an inch and a half from my leg. So go to the hospital, spend a week. Turns out I broke my tibia and ruptured an ankle ligament. So after a week, I leave the hospital with a steel rod in my tibia, a sutured ligament, a cast going to my knee, a pair of crutches, and a seriously bruised ego. So I get back to Juneau, and I owe my family a vacation. <laughs> um, in the meantime, it has started to snow. So here I am at the end of 81 uncovered stairs with a cast, crutches, and directions not to put weight on my right leg for four weeks. So it becomes, take one step with the crutches, put them down, shovel this step. Take another step with the crutches, put them down, shovel the step. 81 stairs. So anyway, the upshot is the Virgin Islands are still virgin as far as the Custers are concerned. <laughs> I still owe them a sun vacation. I think I've made up for that in the meantime. And as far as skydiving goes, you can bet your bottom dollar, never again.
Well, as any um, good attorney would say, there are multiple sides to any story, and it's important that we hear them. So next up, I would like to introduce Tom's wife, <laughs> Sue Custer. Yeah, let's hear from her. Sue came to Juneau in 1975, birthed two daughters on the shores of Oak Bay, and retired as a professor emeritus of, emeritus of communications in 2015. Now she fills her days with volunteer work, friends, good books, and conversations. Ask her about her grandchildren or hula, and she just might talk your ear off. Please welcome to the stage, Sue. Let's talk about the collateral damage. <laughs> Why? Well, there is more to this story. She said version contrasted with he said that you all just heard. So where do I begin? Do I begin with my feelings as I'm watching my handsome husband float through the air, land hard, and not get up? No. Do I start by thinking, remembering that prophetic child that's sobbing as I'm holding her? No. Maybe the loss of that dream trip to the Virgin Islands. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about my reality for the next week. Yeah. After we say goodbye to Tom at the hospital, it's not a pretty sight. He doesn't want to have anything to do with us. In fact, he'd like us to get out of the room as soon as possible because he's in a lot of pain, really uncomfortable, and wants to try to go to sleep. So we backtrack to what is going to be our home for the next week. Now, my sister, as you just heard, is the owner of this business, High Adventure Sports, and she has lots of clients coming in from all over the world, and she provides them with accommodations that were our accommodations, our sleeping quarters for the next week or so. A trailer, simple, cozy. I've never seen it before. She's not there, but we're set up for the night. We have a mattress on the floor. Now you know the routine. Many of you have been there before. I have a nursing baby on one side and a toddler on the other side. What could be better? We're all cozy. Things are going well. We're feeling bad for daddy, but you know, we're, the three of us are together until about three in the morning when the toddler wakes up and she says, Mommy, my tummy hurts. My tummy hurts. And I try to console her, and, but you know, I'm not surprised. She was born under the astrological sign of the cancer. I'm a cancer. Her baby sister is a cancer. And you know what? Cancers experience stress and trauma in their stomachs. So try as I can to console her and make her feel better. It doesn't work. Guess what? She vomits all over me, all over herself, all over the bed. It's the middle of the night. Oh, yuck. I think, oh, we'll just try to go back to sleep. Oh, no, it's too wet. It's too stinky. 
Yeah, who wants to sleep in that? So here, okay, I gotta get up and I gotta find my um, a solution to this problem. I am the mother, I can cope, I can make this better. I get up, try not to step on the baby on the outside of the mattress and begin to slowly work my way down a very dark hallway. So I'm like this, against the hands against the wall, and uh, as I'm walking along, occasionally I feel, or hear, a, a little crunch, crackle, and I'm going, well, what's that? That's oh, the crackers the kids dropped earlier in the evening. Finally get to what appears to be the kitchen. I look in the distance, I see a sink. I go over to the sink, click on the light switch. Immediately, 50 cockroaches <laughs> appear in the sink. Uh, oh, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit. But there had to be at least eight. <laughs> They're this big. That, that's a good-sized cockroach. I, I don't live with cockroaches. I don't know cockroaches. And... <sighs> I breathe deeply, I can cope with this, this is something I can handle, just ignore the cockroaches, yeah, maybe you stepped on some of them on your way in here, but no big deal. I grab a wet rag, I grab a couple of towels, head back to the mattress on the floor, looking behind me, wondering if any of the cockroaches are following me, and I get to the bed, clean Summer up, make sure that she's gone back to sleep. And in fact, we all fall asleep. Next morning, my sister, cheery as always, shows up and she said, how was it last night? And I said, well, let me tell you the story. I tell her the story and she goes, ah, oh, no big deal, cockroaches, you know, they're, they're harmless, you can't, they won't hurt you. Okay, but we do have something we have to deal with here. We've got some dirty, stinky sheets. And she says, okay, well, we'll take them to the laundromat. The laundromat? Wait a minute, I don't want to hang out in a laundromat, but that's what I'm doing for the next couple of days. I'm visiting my husband in the hospital. He doesn't want to see us. I'm trying to entertain two small children. I'm washing sheets, and I'm lamenting the loss of what was going to be a dream vacation. The only highlight... The only highlight is watching my beautiful sister, dressed as Wonder Woman, skillfully jumping out of an airplane into a crowd of fans, carnivals, festivals, special events. She lands, everybody applauds as they love her. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I wish that Wonder Woman could perform a miracle for us and make us all go away. Alas and alack, it wasn't to happen. Nope, we coped. We returned to Juno, as Tom shared with you. And as we left the idea, the fantasy at this point, of warm beaches in the Virgin Islands, and returned to some very cold beaches in Juneau, Alaska. I had the clear knowledge that never again, never again would I have to dance with cockroaches on my way to the bathroom in the middle of the night. <laughs> and in fact, I don't. One more
our storyteller before our intermission, and that is Karen Silkitis. Uh, Karen Silkitis is a non-binary, queer, academic, and artist. Came to Juno about a year and a half ago from Chicago, where they were an actor, director, and theater department chair. Now they serve the University of Alaska Southeast as Dean of Arts and Sciences and live on Lena with their wife, Chrissy. They would like to thank Juno for the warm welcome they have received since their arrival. Here's Karen. Never again will I get on a boat that my father is captaining, <laughs> otherwise known as Summers with Dad. Okay, so my parents got divorced when I was two years old, and my mother shipped my older sister and I off to Florida every summer for three months. And my father inadvertently tried to murder my sister and I over a dozen times over the years. I only have time to tell you one of these murderous adventures, although my sister and I have been chronicling them in something we call Summers with Dad. If we do write that movie, you're going to want to watch it. Okay, anywho, my sister, who's older, um, when I was uh, in fifth grade, she went off to college, and I started to get bored, so I would bring friends with me down to Florida. And one of these summers, I think it was my freshman year in college, I brought a friend named Amy. So Amy goes to Florida with me, and I find out that she's terrified of the ocean. Why Florida? I don't know, Amy. So she gets to Florida, and one night my dad goes, okay, girls, tomorrow we're going to go out on the boat. And I've had a lot of murderous adventures with my dad. So I was like, okay, dad, we need to immediately establish some ground rules. Number one, you will not take us out without checking the weather. There's not going to be this like six to eight, eight to 10 waves. We're only going out if it's like zero to two, two to four. Also, you will be checking for storms. We're not going to do the thing where you get struck by lightning and your eight-year-old daughter has to drive you all the way back to Miami by herself because that happened to me. Mm-hmm. Also, we're not going to do the thing where you bottom fish while our bodies are snorkeling in the water, drawing barracuda and sharks to our body, because that happened to me when I was five. Okay. Yeah, we're not going to do that. So he agreed to the ground rules, and off we go the next day at 6 a.m. It was a beautiful day. I felt like things were going to go really well, and they did for a while. Until they didn't. So my face was in the water, and all of a sudden the fish scattered, and everything got really dark, and I knew what that meant. So I picked my head up, and all of a sudden, hell itself was rolling towards us. And I was like, Dad, look! And he was like, uh, it's going to be fine. Uh, yeah, you girls, you, you girls want to get in the boat? Okay, so I tap Amy, and I was like, Amy, um... We gotta go, there's like a storm rolling in. And she's like, is it gonna be okay? And I was like, yeah, yeah, it's gonna get um, a little rolly and a little wet, but yeah, it's gonna be fine. By the way, he had taken us to the Keys that morning, so we were a good two hours from Miami. So we get in the boat, and by, I don't know if you've been to Florida, but when storms come in, they are fast, and they come in violently. So by the time we even got in the boat, our faces were being like pelted with rain, and the boat was already like really starting to move, and my dad's trying to pull up the anchor, and it wasn't working. So he's like, Karen, get up here! So I get up there with him, and we're both now trying to pull up the anchor. It's not working, it's stuck, and he's like, Karen, you're gonna have to dive down there and get the anchor free. And I was like, yeah, 
Yeah, it's exactly what I want to do right now is dive back in that water. But he made his child do that, so I did. And I'm, uh, I can't see anything, there's zero visibility, and I'm like feeling my way down with the rope, and what feels like about an hour that I'm fighting with the anchor, I'm sure it wasn't an hour, um, I finally got it free, and for a moment I felt like everything was gonna be like, okay, until the anchor slides across the ocean floor, and I realized the boat was leaving me. And I surface, and I was like, Dad! And he calls out, uh, the boat's gonna run aground. You're gonna have to swim for it. As I watch my father leave, and I'm in the ocean, and I'm by myself in a storm um, alone. And now the boat seems like a speck that's really far away. And I'm just there, and... <laughs> I know, I've been in the Keys many times by myself. I know it's in that water when it gets really stormy and it's dark. And I'm like, all I can think about is like, I'm about to be eaten by a bull shark. And so I tell myself, swim smoothly and rhythmically and don't act like prey. <laughs> so I start swimming for the boat smoothly and rhythmically. And it felt like four hours, and I know it wasn't, but it was really hard, and it was against the current. And then as I get closer to the boat, I see Amy, who's terrified of the ocean, like sobbing, and she's saying things like, what's that? What's that? And I was like, I don't want to know what that is, but I hope that it circles for a while before it takes a bite. And I get to the boat, and I'm so tired, and I was like, pull me up! And so he pulls me out of the water, and I think everything's going to be okay. And then we start heading towards Miami. And we get to that beautiful part of the ocean where there's no land in sight. And normally that's a peaceful place for me, but it wasn't that day because the boat's like, right? And then I hear the engine cut. And I was like, dad! And he's like, damn it. I thought I put gas in this morning. And I was like, dad! It, I go over to the instruments, and it says we have half a tank. And I was like, Dad, there's plenty of gas. Just, like, fix the engine, and let's get out of here. And he says, uh, gas gauge has been broken for a long time. And I'm murderous by this point. And I was like, okay. Amy's sobbing. And I was like, um, Dad, let's get the radio. I think it's time for a rescue. Okay. And he says to me, uh, yeah, radio's broken. So, um... I think it's time to hunker down for the night because there's definitely not going to be anybody out here in the storm. And I was like, oh, I'm not hunkering down. I'm not hunkering down. And I see Amy's in a bright white shirt. I was like, Amy, give me your shirt. And I, I go, I like shimmy my way in the storm to the front of the boat. And I'm like waving Amy's shirt, trying to get a boat. And he's like, Karen, nobody's, you're going to kill yourself. There's waves like crashing over me and I'm going to fall in. And he's like, get down from there. And I was like, no. And I'm waving the shirt. And finally, after again, what felt like hours and probably wasn't, I see a boat and it turns and it comes. And we actually got rescued. And the look on that captain's face when I told him, because I did, I ratted out my dad and I told the captain that we didn't have a working gas gauge um, or a radio. The look that he gave my father almost made the whole thing worth it. And never again will I go on a boat that my father is captain. And also now he really wants to come to Alaska and fish. So if anybody knows a good captain, let me know. Thank you.
You're listening to Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO Juno at 104.3 FM. These stories were told on January 10th, 2023. The theme was Never Again. Do you have a story you'd like to tell? To find out the dates and themes for our upcoming shows, visit us at mudrooms.org. Next up, we have Taylor Beard. Taylor was born and raised in northern Utah, for the most part on an organic farm and cattle ranch. Feel free to make assumptions, as some might be spot on. Like, for instance, a a proclivity for saying y'all or howdy. Her husband, Ben, and his career brought them, which includes two male kidlets, Otis and Arlo, and various pets to Juno, where she has found the rain to be perfect for spending her days weaving tales through the two novels she is working on. She and the family groove on hiking, skiing, and generally exploring the bounty of awesomeness the area has gifted them. Please welcome to the stage, Taylor. Okay, so the last time I spoke in front of a load of people was 11 years ago at my best friend's wedding. Her father, who's a neurologist, uh, knew that I would probably cry, so he saw an opportunity, and he took that, grasped it. And he told me that if I squeezed my butt hard enough, it would not be physically possible for me to cry. (laughs) He's a liar. And I found this out the hard way, clenching like my life depended on it through a ceremony, which isn't a great look. So don't do that. Just trust me. But it was a great segue into my speech where I was once again crying. So I feel like this night is going to go much better because I'm not crying at least. So when I was three years old, my parents had me in ski lessons. I had this wonderful little 80s style rainbow ski suit, one piece. It was awesome. I was the definition of adorable. And we had a condo that was across the street from the base of Park City Mountain Resort. So that's, we were 700 feet from the chairlift. It was awesome. And yet my father decided to be lazy about it and let's take the bus up to the resort. Uh, I judged him really hard about this for years. And then I had kids and I get it. So he's been forgiven. But as I said, we are headed over to the bus. So I toddle out there, I'll stay puff marshmallow man, little skis and all. And the bus is late. And uh, if any of you don't have kids, the attention span of a three-year-old is like not, it's not a, there's nothing there. And so three-year-old me's looking around like, what am I going to do? What am I going to, I got to have something to do. And my eyes landed on the frozen bus stop pole right in front of me. And I thought, oh man, look at all that frost. (laughs) My poor father turned and locked eyes with me just as I grabbed that pole and gave it a hearty lick. <laughs> and, I, and his reaction is forever crystallized in my memory. <laughs> no! Oh. 
at Tulate, man, it's, it's done, right? My whole tongue was stuck to that pole because, you know, I saw Frost and I was like gonna conquer all of it, I was three. And if any of you are thinking like, oh, this, this sounds a lot like Dumb and Dumber. Yeah, I know, I'm, I'm aware. I get PTSD every time I watch that movie. So, I mean, I went after this pole like it was a popsicle, right? Like three-year-old Frost popsicle. And I remember having the thought of like, oh, this, this isn't anything like a popsicle. And then quickly followed by, this doesn't move like a popsicle either. Yeah, no, it doesn't. It's uh, when you're licking a pole that's cemented into the earth, it doesn't move like a handheld frozen treat. It, that's simple science. Um, this is the point at which the bus decided to arrive. <laughs> but it didn't really arrive, right? Like the bus driver approached with caution and he could see my father who like me is a Celtic mutt and has the lovely complexion of a tomato. So he sees this guy ah, freaking out and made the very wise choice to just chug on past. Yeah, bye. I mean, in his defense, like, he didn't know we needed the bus, like, because we didn't need the bus at that moment. Like, how was I going to get on the bus? I'm stuck to a pole. So dad has told me that he thought, he said my tongue was so far out of my mouth that he thought I was going to rip it out. And uh, instead of, you know, like running across the street to get water or, for God's sake, yelling for help in the densely packed condo complex, because surely somebody would have heard. No, my Navy medic trained father decided to lick his finger and peel my tongue off the pole. And this is when I realized dad has zero chill. And uh, so the first layer of my tongue came off and part of my second layer. So because it's cold in Park City, it the the part of my tongue that stayed on the pole, it stayed there through the winter. <laughs> and you know, as a three-year-old, I was like, that's part of my body. And I waved at it every time we drove past. Hi, tongue! I thought it was great, right? I'm sure my father was like, oh, yeah. So understandably, my mother was a little frantic when we came wandering back into the house. I'm bleeding profusely from my mouth, and she's like, what the hell happened, Chip? As I stand there trauma sobbing, <laughs> with all these little bloody bubbles forming around my mouth. I had blood all over my rainbow ski suit. It really ruined the effect. So dad tells mom what the hell happened. And she just looks at me, oh honey, and scoops me up and wipes me off and stuffs a lifesaver in my mouth and is like, oh, just suck on it, it'll feel better. And it did, because I was three and it was sugar, and who doesn't feel better with sugar, right? And my mouth's going dry, so just uh, ignore that. Um, so three lifesavers in, I was bundled back up and headed off to ski lessons. I do remember my parents discussing, uh, yeah, no, it's not that noticeable, blood's not noticeable. And I wish I could go back in time and just stand there while my father explained this to the ski school. Yeah, we, uh, we had a little issue as we headed up here, and my daughter's taste buds are on the pullback over there, that's how that went. Um, you know, mouth injuries heal the quickest, and so I kind of understand their logic of like, let's get the hellion out of the house, she's fine. 
but the thing I do remember after this was we always had lunch with our ski lessons. And I remember thinking, like, um, this grilled cheese doesn't taste right. It tastes pretty metallic. And definitely said this to my ski instructor. It doesn't taste right. And Candy, who was my ski instructor, looked at me and was like, yeah, I bet it doesn't, bud. Yeah, so that is why I will never again be wooed by a frozen pole. Thank you. So our sixth storyteller is our name from the hat, which is Colby Randall, and that's all I have on my paper. So does anybody know Colby? Great dancer. Great dancer. One more, one more. Beautiful. Okay. This is Colby. Hello, everybody. I didn't particularly expect to come up here tonight, as you've probably heard. I'm the one that got my name drawn out of a hat. A little bit about myself for some context as I try and finish up the details of my story in my head. My name is Kelby Roy Rafael Cosmes Diaz Jurado Townsend Randall which is uh, something you might pick up if you're from somewhere, or your parents at least are from somewhere in South America. <laughs> um, another important detail is that I was not from South America. I am from that part of Illinois that's not Chicago, just a whole bunch of cornfields and a lot of Swedish people for some reason in my town. So as you can see, I'm a whole five foot three and a little darker, and that was fun going to high school as they're usually around six foot two and uh, used sunscreen. <laughs> the one thing I did have going for me at the time was we you know, grew up on a farm, which meant we had some land to play around on. And my grandpa, uh, before he retired, he owned a lumberyard. This meant that while we didn't have too terribly much money to spend growing up, I had so much lumber. <laughs> and it came in handy when I decided to move to Alaska. I was about... 19 at the time. I'm only 21 now, so I haven't been here for too long. I literally just moved to Juneau this year. And from what I gather, <laughs> this is kind of a common experience. So COVID hit, it was 2020, and I decided I'm going to move to Alaska because I was living in a one-bedroom apartment going to college. This one-bedroom apartment had myself and three other people in it. It was 700 square feet. The only good thing about it is we were having a good time, and we were paying like $150 for rent. I took what I had, which was a truck I bought for $2,000, a little bit of experience building picnic tables in the summers. And when Illinois passed a law saying that restaurants could only have outdoor seating, one of my friends, he sent me this news article and he said, hey, Kelby, you know how to build picnic tables, right? And I said, yeah, Peter, what's up? And from that news article, we gathered a whole bunch of unemployed friends who were freshly out of a job due to COVID, and we set up shop in the barn and garage, and we started building about 20 picnic tables a day, which we would throw on the back of my truck and sell in Chicago. This was best time. Just can you imagine you're 18 years old, you're selling picnic tables with all your best friends in the world. And it's unfortunate now that we're all about 3,000 miles away, they're all still in college, I dropped out. But I took the money, I paid off my college debt, and I was left with about $3,000. And I said, yes, that is plenty of money for me to drive through Canada alone. 
and I am never going to drive through Canada alone again. I'm sure some of you have some common experience with the uh, Alcan or the Cassiar, but I took my truck with 170,000 miles on it at the time, and I built the bed out. I don't know if any of you have seen this around town. It's a blue Chevy 2003, and it says Alaska or bust on the side. And it has the map of everywhere that I've driven. Um, I don't know, probably about 15,000 miles on there around the lower 48, and then 3,000 more up through Canada. And I built the sleeper cab on the back, and I was on my way. After I built it up, and after I'd take care of the rest of my expenses, I had about $1,500 left by the time I left Geneva, Illinois. So, we started our journey, my truck and I. Um, I call her Old Blue. I'm very emotionally attached at this point, even though uh, she's broken down on me several times. We go first through Wisconsin. Goes off without a hitch, right? I have family in Wisconsin. I stay over at my cousin Ben's place. It's a wonderful time. He introduces me to uh, Menominee drinking culture for a night. And then I only drive about three hours the next day, and I get to Fargo, North Dakota. <laughs> And in North Dakota is where we hit our first speed bump in the road. You see, I forget to check the weather. Rookie mistake, whether you're driving boats or cars, always check the weather. And I get about an hour outside of Fargo, North Dakota before I'm in, oh, what was it, Jacksonville? Or Johnsonville, something generic like that. Tiny town, and it starts to snow. And it starts to snow, and it keeps snowing. And I don't know if anybody heard about this, but this was early April. And the interstates in North Dakota, Minnesota, and Montana were actually shut down for four days. And I just happened to be caught in the middle of that. So uh, I had the good fortune that it was a Sunday when this started. And uh, like any good Catholic boy that I was raised, I decided to walk into a church. And there were some very kind, charitable people. I don't know if anybody knows a Kathleen from Jacksonville, North Dakota. but. She was very charitable, and she let me set up shop in the church so I didn't have to sleep in a blizzard in the bed of my truck with my 10-degree sleeping bag in negative 5-degree weather in April. After that, I took off, and I went through Portal, North Dakota to get into Canada. Things were kind of nice for a few days, and I drove up through Saskatchewan. I drove up through Edmonton, Alberta, and uh, somebody from Edmonton? <laughs> lot of flat land in Saskatchewan and Alberta. There's a whole lot of, uh, of cornfields. Oh, I should mention, the speakers in my truck don't work, so I was doing this all without music. I also didn't have any data on my phone. I forgot to take that into account, so I couldn't use the internet. And this comes into play uh, quite a lot in the next few days, because after I get through Edmonton and Dawson City, I'm officially on the Alcan. I'm checking my receipts as I buy gas. I'm like, all right, all right, I've spent $600 by now. I've spent $700 here. And I get to Teslin in the Yukon. And all of a sudden, my card declines. And that's not right. I've only spent $900 in gas because I have so much money, you know. And I come to find out a little detail about my truck because I built it myself. It's a little janky. It's a little, it's a little jerry-rigged. Not every gas pump works on my truck, right? So you go and you pay, and you click all the buttons, and your debit card takes its information, and you go to pump the gas, and it doesn't come out because the oxygen sensor reads it, whatever. All you need to know is I paid for gas, and I didn't get it. And I did this at about four pumps <laughs> around Canada. 
before I realized what was going on. And I had put $100 credit on each of them. And I had to call each of them and say, hey, if you check the receipts, then you'll find I didn't actually spend any gas. I just put this much money down as a pre-deposit because I was using an American bank account. They make you do that. And here I was cooped up in Tesla, North Dakota. I had already rebooked my ferry ticket down from Skagway once, and I was panicking because it was the 23rd, and I had a boat to catch at 6 p.m. on the 24th. Eventually, what I ended up having to do is I took a few things out of the back. I took my mountaineering boots, I took my crampons, and I walked on over to the uh, secondhand store, the outdoorsman store, the everything store, the Tesla store, they called it. And I uh, said, how much can I get for these? So I got $120 cash, and I spent the next three hours driving through Canada before I got to the U.S. Customs Station, and I could turn my music back on once again with the U.S. data. Through that experience, I was able to pick up a pair of crampons and mountaineering boots for even cheaper here at Second Wind Sports. Shout out to them. <laughs> <laughs> and I was able to get about $700 of my money back from all those gas stations. Luckily, I did keep the receipts. And by the time that I got my first paycheck from working here, I was down to just $25 in my bank account. But that whole experience was quite stressful. And I got to say, there's a reason you should never drive through Canada alone. <laughs> Our last story uh, tonight is told by a former board member and current uh, coach, Tom Cosgrove. Yeah. So Tom believes stories are at the core of our humanity. And by sharing our stories, we glimpse life through other eyes, discovering our similarities rather than just seeing the differences. Mudrooms gives us a place for that. Keep it up, he says to all of us. Thank you, Tom. Uh, oh, and he will never again get a puppy, mix martinis and oysters, or wear a seersucker suit. Please welcome to the stage, Tom Cosgrove. In the 1980s, during the first wave of the personal computer revolution, the corporate world was caught off guard. They thought PCs were toys, a fad that would soon fade. So when PCs invaded the office, they were desperate. They had to hire anyone with even a whiff of experience, which is how I got into the business. With a liberal arts education and an extremely thin resume, I rode that PC wave all the way from Kansas City to the 29th floor of the Prudential Tower in downtown Chicago, where I worked as a high-priced consultant for a national accounting firm. Now, this was the real deal, man. Business travel, expense account, cocktail lunches. And I dressed the part, silk tie, tasseled loafers, even had a monogram briefcase. People told me I had a dream job. But it wasn't my dream. I fell into it. I, and it was, uh, it was, it was stressful. I, I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. And to stay up with the tech scene, I had to continuously learn at a blistering pace. But I still, I stayed because it paid so damn well. Straight north of the Prudential Tower, 
up Michigan Avenue and Lakeshore Drive is Belmont Harbor. That's where I lived. I took the bus to work, and although just a few miles, the local could take up to an hour. But the express bus could get me to work in under 20 minutes, if I could get on. Belmont Harbor was the last stop made by the southbound express bus before heading into downtown. And by the time it got to us, there was rarely any room. Also, at our stop, there was never a line or a queue. It was more like a scrum. <laughs> and the reason is, is that the bus actually hardly ever stopped at the actual bus stop. It would stop anywhere within a half a block, depending on weather, traffic, and how ornery the driver was. So the game was to guess where the bus was to, would stop and to get there first. After studying it for a bit, I, I figured it out. When you heard the, uh, the brakes on the bus, the air brakes, that bus would stop in like three car lengths. I got pretty good at the game. And, but I got tired of hassling with all the people. So I started going to the bus stop earlier and earlier until I figured out I could always get a seat on the 6.20 a.m. express. On this particular morning, it was cold, dark, windy, and wet. As I approached the stop, I saw a crowd, unusual for the hour. And when I looked up, I saw the glowing express bus emerge from the dark and start descending to our stop. It was packed. You could just see people jammed in there. What the hell is going on? Game on. I am not going to get stuck taking that local again. I loosened up. I got up on the balls of my feet, and I listened. Uh, and I was off like a laser focused on the spot that I knew the bus would stop. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw somebody coming up, trying to cut me off from the landing zone. <laughs> I lift my elbow and my monogram briefcase and exe executed a perfect blocking maneuver and landed on that curve just as that door whooshed open. The bus is full, wait for the next one. But the lowest step was empty. So I hopped on, and I turned as the door whooshed shut. And there, inches away, on the other side of that glass door, was a gray-haired Latina woman. She uh, stood hunched to the rain with a hand holding the straps to her pleated plastic rain hat. Out of her rain-soaked and threadbare canvas raincoat, I could see the blue of her housekeeper's uniform. Our eyes locked. Her eyes weren't angry. They were resigned, just another indignity. I couldn't hold her naked gaze and look down to my tasseled loafers. I looked up as the bus took off. She was still staring, and we maintained eye contact as she disappeared into the cold and dark. 
What was I doing? This is not who I am. The city had changed me. When I got to work, I slammed the door to my tiny windowless office and looked at all the ridiculous certificates on the wall. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. But I knew I was getting out. So I sat down and started to spin my Rolodex. Now, if you don't know what a Rolodex is, <laughs> it is a way cool retro way to store your contacts. Check it out. <laughs> I was looking for anyone who could help. And it did not take me much spinning till I found it. An old friend from high school was living in Juneau, working for Alaska Governor Steve Cooper. I gave him a call. He was nothing but encouragement. And told me I could sleep on his basement floor while I looked for a job. It was all I needed to hear. Within six weeks, I was on the Alcan heading north, and I have never looked back. My only regret is I didn't leave 10 years earlier. I still feel guilty about what I did to that woman. But I also have a tremendous amount of gratitude because without her, I might never have escaped. Thank you. This is KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live at Mudrooms on January 10th, 2023. The theme for the evening was Never Again. Friends of the Marie Drake Planetarium were the beneficiary, and music was performed by the Njuzu Marimba Band. Special thanks to Kenitha D. Northern Light United Church, Copa and the Rookery for supporting the event, to Alaska Robotics for hosting our website, mudrooms.org, and of course, to KTOO for bringing each mudrooms to listeners like you. Join us on February 14th for our next show. The theme will be YOLO, You Only Live Once, Stories of Risk, Reward, and Reckless Abandon. This program is a production of the Mudroom Storyboard. Alita Buss, Rich Moniak, David Dune, Kristen Rankin, Crystal Brulat, Jane Hale, Summer Coaster, and me, Jeff Smith. Have a good night.